Welcome to another episode of Faith and Culture. As pastors, ministers, and elders, we believe that the enemy is after your heart and your mind, and so we're stepping into the fray. This week, the guys discuss the power and the importance of storytelling. The first principles in Genesis 1 through 4 are packaged for us in the form of story. Jesus taught us through story. Satan himself has stories he'd like to tell. Both the truth and the lie seek to shape human hearts and minds through the power of storytelling. So welcome to the conversation. Hey, we're back together on a cold December morning in the secret sanctum of Lake Ridge Bible Church recording another episode of Faith and Culture Conversations. Today is kind of a Christmas-themed conversation. It is at least somewhat going to um, revolve around the Christmas season, so I hope you're listening to this in December. If you're not, it's not all about Christmas, so it's not a total waste of your time. Uh, but we do have the usual suspects rounded up together today. We've got Kyle and Van and Keith and myself, Ben, here. Uh, we're all engaged in ministry at Lake Ridge Bible Church at one level or another, and today we're going to talk about the power of stories. We're telling a lot of stories as a culture, and as Christians, we're familiar with a lot of stories. But I want to ask a question to, to sort of get at the heart of um, the conversation this morning, and here's the question, guys. So, where does meaning come from? How does a person uh, develop meaning for themselves, understand their own meaning and purpose? Uh, and, and is there such a thing as a collective or shared meaning, or does everything really boil down ultimately to hyper-individualities of um, isolation, where everyone determines their own truth, their own meaning? Does that make sense? Yeah, I might draw a distinction between meaning and truth simply being that I would call meaning uh the way that truth connects to different things. Um, so, for instance, you could have the truth, um, the world is round, um, but the meaning for that might be, because I'm living in America, um, I'm in the Northern Hemisphere, and that's going to you know relate to me kind of differently. Um, so I would say, if I'm man, if I'm going to try and uh, throw a rock at the idea of meaning, I would say uh, meaning is the way that we see ourselves connected to the truth, to reality, to others, and kind of how we relate to those huge things. And yeah. I think we do that. Um, I would say how we find meaning in a lot of ways is probably connected to the idea of imagination. Um, this is actually C.S. Lewis's contention is that um, imagination is the organ of meaning. Um, it's the way that we apprehend our connection to things, either seen or unseen. Um, I don't know if I've gotten to the point of whether there are lots of those. That's yeah. where I'd go first. Yeah, I would say in answering your question, where where does it come from, or meaning or purpose? Um, I guess I guess I don't guess. I mean, that's decided by the Creator, and so we being the creation, I think we can live outside our intended meaning or purpose uh, if we choose to ignore what the Creator has to say to us. So, I think that's where it starts. Um, I, I'm told what my purpose is from God's Word, so. That's that's the origin for meaning and, and purpose in my life. 
but I, I see how it's very easy, obviously, for people in the world to live outside of God's intended purpose. Yeah, there's a givenness to meaning, as you say. And I think it's significant that God actually spoke the universe into existence. You know, we use the word uh, meaning. Um, and the most essential place you talk about meaning is in the realm of speech, that you actually intend something by what is said. And so the fact that God spoke the universe, he intended something to be, um, is the only way you can find really meaning. Because if it wasn't created, if it wasn't given, if there wasn't a purpose when it was created, then there is no way for you to sort of conjure meaning up. Um, that would be, I think, a farce. <laughs> I mean, you hit on this yesterday in your message, you know, Ephesians 2.10, where God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Well, he's defining that for us. He's telling us what it, we're supposed to be about, right? Mm. And so... Yeah, I think you're getting at... Um, it's a really boils down, I think, to the question of purpose. We're really good in our culture about talking about what we can do. We're not so good about discussing what we might be for. Uh, as, you know, the notion that we have a purpose beyond consumption and gratification is increasingly foreign in in our particular culture. Um, you know, several years ago, I had a really good friend that raised uh, bird dogs. I had never been hunting with bird dogs before, but he invited me one Saturday to go up with him to southern Oklahoma and hunt quail with his bird dogs. And uh, it was it was a fascinating experience, really. But those dogs were bred to hunt and find quail, and they uh, we got them out of the box in the back of the truck, and they were literally beside themselves with excitement uh, to pursue the thing they had been made to do. And, I mean, they spent the day exhausting themselves, running over those fields, finding quail uh, and pointing and... Uh, l giving me disgusted looks when I would miss the quail with my shotgun. Um, they, I mean, they literally knew what I was supposed to do. And when I didn't do it, they, they weren't happy about that. Um, and so um, I think there's delight and fulfillment and meaning when we're pursuing the thing we're designed to do. But when, we're, when we distort that and we pursue things that are unrelated to our purpose, then then there's a loss of meaning. Yeah. So the question about where meaning comes from and how it connects to purpose, um, and Kyle, your, your point about that our meaning is really a way of understanding how we connect to the truth, to, to some transcendent truths about the world and the way it works, and then Van, the point you're making about really God's the one as the creator who determines those things for us, it kind of, all of this highlights from, in my mind, the power of storytelling, because there's the the, the stories that we tell, um, for instance, as Christians, Van, you, you, you couldn't even talk about meaning without hearkening unto this story of the Creator who made the world, and the first principles we've been talking about as a group in here for in the last several months are presented to us in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, 4, maybe through 9, uh, first principles um, show up. Uh, all of those first principles are presented to us in the form of a story. And I don't think that, that that's, that's an accident. I, was, um, I happened to be listening to another uh, conversation this morning on YouTube between two um, 
guys with huge brains, and uh, <laughs> and one of them was. You wouldn't tell by the size of their skulls. There's not like they're appalling to look at. It's just, they, you know. They, <laughs> they're not mega minds. Yeah, no, they're just, they're just very, guys. they're smart, well-educated, you know, well-read and informed fellows. And one of them was, had a PhD in neuroscience and a PhD in literature. And he's, he's writing about at the intersection of the impact of story on the human brain, okay? And he, he said this, he said, the human brain is the most powerful thing in existence. It has created the world as we know it, not the world as in the earth, but the cultures and the, the politics and the art and the beauty and the trauma um, of the world that we live in, born of the human mind. He says, but stories are the most powerful tool for shaping the human mind. Stories, he says, are the most powerful invention in human history. And I, I think he's right but I'd like for us to engage with that idea a little bit. Let's talk a bit about the power of story. Do you do you agree or disagree? Oh, absolutely. So when my nieces were little bitty, um, it was fun for less than I just because we didn't have kids of our own yet. And uh, I love telling stories. I, I love making up stuff. I mean, being in youth ministry for years, I mean, you, you do that stuff with students and just to have a fun time. And uh, But even then, whether it was my nieces at a young age or <laughs> youth, it's apparent that when you start telling something, even though you're maybe just making something up in the moment, how it just captures their attention and they are honed in on this, right? And uh, I could just go for forever and they would just sit in front of me and and listen, uh, waiting to hear what the next uh, event was going to be, you know, in the story. And uh, so I have no doubt that, that it's such a powerful tool. I mean, Jesus went to parables uh, much of the time in his teaching. And even for the Pharisees and the religious leaders, he had their attention captured, and they didn't realize that they were <laughs> feeding into what he, the point he was going to drive home. And uh, so I, I totally agree. I, I think the stories are just awesome. And uh, I've been impacted by them in my life. I love telling them. But I especially love the really the, the privilege of telling stories about the truth from God's word and, and sharing the gospel mm-hmm. with people through story. It's uh, it's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I think the fact that mm-hmm. the majority of our revelation in scripture comes in the form of a story would certainly make me believe that story is one of the most powerful forms of, of truth telling and of communication that we have. Uh, otherwise, God would have used another method. Um, he did use other methods, but story was seemed to be a particular favorite of his. And I think part of that is because it's able to combine in such a magical way that which is logical and that which is unexpected. So when you look at how a story works, a story has to make sense within itself. So you've got all these characters and all these settings, and the plot's got to go from you know, little boy on the farm to the dragon is slain and the kingdom is saved. And you have to connect all those things in a way that makes sense to the mind, but you have to do it in a way that's unexpected enough. And so it's the interplay, I think, between the surprise that we find in life, that we find in the world, um, that we even find in the Christian story, the way that God seems to continually surprise people, married to this idea that things have a purpose, they have a natural conclusion that there's an internal logic to the way things happen. Um, I think that's what makes a story satisfying. That moment when you get to the end of the story uh, or a movie and the credits start to roll and you sort of sit back and go, oh, 
that's exactly the story that needed to be told. Um, I think that's why story just captures people. Yeah. Yeah, so it's Christmas. And it's Christmas season. I'm recording this. And there's some stories that we tell every year around this time of year. And one of them being the story of Santa Claus. Mm. It's a collective story, interestingly enough. It's one of the shared Western traditions. Uh, it, there's a version of Santa Claus in most Western nations. Um, he doesn't father Christmas in the United Kingdom. You know, Père Noel in France. Um, Santa Claus in America. But here's my question. There's most of the world and even some of the world's powers, like greatest nations, are proactively involved in sustaining the myth of Santa Claus, the cultural myth of Santa Claus. And for instance, NORAD um, uh, is... You can, you can call NORAD on Christmas Eve and they will give you the exact location on the planet of Santa Claus and his sleigh. You mean like the people who like run the defense of my country? Yes. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yes. Um, <laughs> if, if, so if you write a letter to, you know, in France as a, as a, you know, a, a little French kid writes a letter to Santa Claus in France and sends it through the postal service, the, the, the French postal service will send them a reply from Santa Claus. It's, it's required. If anyone else in the nation sends a letter to Père Noël in France, they will also send you a reply Wow! from Santa Claus. So, like, there are very powerful agencies that seem, you know, interested in keeping up this myth. Meanwhile, we've got Christians who some are, are you know, all about Santa. It's great fun. Let's do this. Others mm -hmm. are like, no, you know, Santa is a lie. And if you tell your kids about Santa, you're just lying to them. Uh, so which which is it? What, what gives here? <laughs> so I'll give—I won't give my answer yet, but I will give an interesting perspective on my childhood. So I grew up in a house without Santa in the sense that my parents did not perpetuate Santa Claus as a real person in my home when I grew up. Um, I was terrible. Yeah. Well, you <laughs> know, I, I, but what was fascinating to me is I was— I grew up never having been told Santa was real, but spent the first probably 12 years of my life wondering if he was. I was a, Christ I was a Christian Santa Claus agnostic. <laughs> I was the one who was told my whole life he wasn't real, and yet I wondered and I hoped and I dreamed, and I would stay up late and I would try and search for answers to this question. And so it's fascinating to me how even people who are told Hey, this is this 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 is something you don't have to believe. We all still want it to be true, <laughs> which is yeah. fascinating. <clears throat> so Anthony Esselin, writer and um, literary professor, um, wrote a book called Defending Boyhood, and in that book he tells his story. He says his daughters, um, one of his daughters, uh, kind of rereads the Lord of the Rings every year. She reads it, and uh, someone asked her one time, "Why do you bother?" I mean, you've read that before. Why do you read it every year? And uh, Anthony Esselin says she didn't ask him what answer to give, but if he were going to tell her what answer to give, he would have her say, I read Lord of the Rings because I want to know what's true in the world. Um, there's a truth in stories, in fictional stories. And fictional stories can be true, even though they're maybe at, at least in part about something fictional. G.K. Chesterton 
I think it was, who said, uh, we, we tell fairy tales to children not to teach them that dragons are real. Children already know that dragons are real. We teach them fairy tales so that they will know that dragons can be killed. And, and I think he's on to something about truth and stories and fiction that uh, there, there can be profound understandings of truth that, are, that flow out of uh, the kinds of stories that we have. I, I mean, Santa Claus, I think, being one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, th- I think Santa Claus is a form of make-believe. Uh, there's a difference between lying and make-believing. You know, make-believing is, I think, a chance for people to live into a part of the truth that, you know, kind of to practice the truth in a safe, um, in a safe way. And it's like little boys who make-believe that they're soldiers saving the world. Hmm. You know, um, that's that's a that that's a part of the way God may have wired a little boy to think. And make-believe is an opportunity. They're not lying when they embody these roles and characters, or when we, you know, certainly when we talk about a, a, a benevolent father who flies around the world rewarding little kids for good behavior and maybe even giving kids presents who don't mm-hmm. behave themselves just the same because he's a, he's a nice guy, you know. There's, there's something about that that's, um, that's kind of true and hopeful. And I would say this is a, a good opportunity to talk about you use the word fiction, Keith, and nonfiction, and I think they're helpful categories for library categories, but maybe not for story categories per se, because every story carries truth differently and carries different truths. Um, and I'm not saying that in like a pluralistic sense, like everybody's got their own truth. They can sort of mold to their pleasure, but I am saying that the truth is vast and it's large and it has many facets. And so to say that The Lord of the Rings is true means that the, the story – carries truth to us differently. It makes the truth wear different clothes than, say, a documentary might or the way um, a nonfiction story about the life of Tolkien. And there have been many of those, and none of them have captivated. None of them have told people about the world in the same way his, uh, his novels did. And so I think we need to be careful about, and this isn't what you did, but I, th- I hear a lot of people talk about this way. They'll say things like, Santa Claus isn't real. Um, but they'll say other things are real that I would greatly differ in terms of uh, what they actually contribute to the truth. Just because something has grounding in facts doesn't always mean it's true in the sense of what it's trying to say about the world, Mm -hmm. right? what's true about reality itself. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think when you look at Santa Claus as an example, I think, you know, there, there, there are truths to the whole mythology around Santa Claus, um, that loving children is good, that giving gifts is good, that going to great lengths to serve others is good and desirable. I mean, all those things are, I think, really powerful uh, conclusions that people learn without it being overtly uh, pedantic and sort of explicit in in the way the idea of Santa Claus is presented. You know, you don't you don't no one says here's the lessons from Santa Claus, you know. I mean, <laughs> but we tell the story of Santa Claus and what insinuates itself into our our worldview and our understanding is that loving children is good and good a good person does that. So, you know, Ben you mentioned make believe. We've talked about the fact that Santa 
the the myth of Santa, myth being something bigger than just simply a story, um, a much more all inclusive, uh, reality uh, defining story. We might say, um, my background's mainly in in theater and in film, and so when I think of a story sort of being a way to lie to tell the truth, to maybe put it in very blunt terms, um, you dress up the truth differently, you use different characters to show what's true about the world, even if the characters themselves never existed. Um, in all those situations, there's a context that people enter into that lets them know they're about to be given a story, as opposed to instructions on how to put a car together, right? So you go into a movie theater, not because you're expecting someone to tell you the news, but because you know you're there for a story. Same thing with uh, a book. You open the book, and the book has given you a, ca a context for the fact that you're being told a story. One of the things that's always been hard for me in talking about the Santa Claus myth idea is we're telling children a different kind of story than we might tell them otherwise about Santa Claus, trying to give them truth wrapped in different clothes. But it's in the same context where we tell them other truths like, you know, this is how the world works. This is what's really – this is what's true in the news. This is what our Bible tells us and everything within this is true. And so I think that for me is one of the things has been difficult to figure out is, <clears throat> is that where people become uncomfortable? Is Because that's where I get uncomfortable is I'm not giving them the ability to know I'm telling them a different story, a different kind of story. And to me, that's the reason why I think it sometimes feels like lying. Yeah, I, I think – um, people fear telling their kids about Santa Claus or creating a, the living into that mythology, sort of make believing around that story, uh, because there's another story that we want them to believe. And if we pull the rug out from under our kids on the Santa Claus narrative, then would will they suddenly doubt the God who made them, the Father who really is benevolent? You know, um, I think that's part of the fear of of storytelling, but I, you, you tapped into something else there. Satan is a liar, right? Jesus calls Satan a liar. He's a liar from the very beginning. He's the father of lies. It's kind of the opposite of Father Christmas, I guess. <laughs> um, he's the father of lies, and what we see Satan doing from the very beginning in the story that we have in Genesis is telling the truth, but in a way that maligns it in a way that undoes it. He tells that he uses the truth to lie. And that's kind of what lies are. Lies lies benefit from the truth at some level. Storytelling is something else. Storytelling is like creation. Uh, when you create a story, you're you're providing a setting within which the truth can thrive. Mm -hmm. The truth can f can flower and blossom. Like the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien creates a story. He creates a world, a setting in which courage and sacrifice and um, evil and nobility um, and humility, all of these truths and values and ideals come to life and flourish and blossom. It's not a lie. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a true story, even if there's not many facts in it, you know, um, at least in the way we tend to understand scientific fact, you know, mm -hmm. or historical fact. But there are there is in fact truth in in the story of the Lord of the Rings. I, I don't think Satan's a big fan of that kind of storytelling, but I do believe the devil tells his own stories. So I'd like for us to talk a little bit about the stories that Satan tells, um, 
what's the difference between a true story and a false story? And and I think you know what I mean by true and false. I don't mean I don't mean historical or fictional. Right. Right. What would you guys say? What would be an example, I guess, mm. of a false story that's been that, that the world is telling right now? <clears throat> that the truth is unkind. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a movie that came out. Um, it was a actually I loved this movie. It was <laughs> in many ways it was a beautiful movie about. Um, a child who was um, had physical deformities, who had always been homeschooled and was afraid, you know, eventually there, it got to the point where this child was super bright and um, they needed to put him in school so that he could flourish in his educational experience. He was very mathematically and scientifically minded. He kind of maxed out his mom's ability to do this. So they put him in the school and it was all about him sort of finding friendships and navigating the challenges of being really different in a in a social setting and I mean there were many beautiful things about this movie but one of the but it was really the whole movie was kind of contrived to uh, in a way to make the point um, that um, sometimes you have to choose between what's true and what and being kind and um, and there was a whole sort of movement that emerged out of this on the importance of mm-hmm. kindness over and against truth. And so what the movie did fundamentally is it drove a wedge between the idea of truth and the idea of being kind. And so truth tellers become morally reprehensible in favor of people who are nice but who leave you believing lies. Um, and so I think this is a pervasive story and a narrative that's in our culture right now is that truth-telling is hate speech. Truth-telling is unkind. Uh, telling people even particularly biblical and moral truths uh, are, are harmful and reprehensible. Mm-hmm. Um, hate speech. Yeah. So after our elder meeting yesterday, Henry had asked Craig and I if we'd seen these commercials that have been airing recently, and uh, at the the tagline at the end of each commercial is, He Gets Us. I don't know if you've seen these, but there's sort of a story told in this 30-second clip, and so we watched one on Henry's phone yesterday, and it said there once was a man who was walking through the town that he lived in and saw people that were hurting, people that were in poverty, people that were... uh, uh, that hated each other, and so this man decided to do something. He invited them all to a, a banquet at his house, and so this sounds like some, the the parable that Jesus tells about you know the the great banquet and God inviting everybody to come. And he said, not everybody showed up in this ad. Not everybody showed up, and the man was sad. He said, but for those that came, he wanted them to get around the table and and just share their differences with each other and be able to. I don't know if they use the word celebrate, but it seemed to imply it and just celebrate each other. And then the tagline at the bottom is, he gets us, and then it, I think the name Jesus shows up there. You're, and my understanding, Henry uh, said that a couple of millionaires got together, and they're the ones backing these, these advertisements. 
Still not sure what to make of it. I mean, if, if this really is a, a way of storytelling to bring point people to the gospel, it's one thing. But without knowing if that's true or not, you're left wondering if when they say to bring people around the table and just celebrate their differences, is this does this mean embrace what Scripture may speak against? And with the tagline, he gets us, are they trying to imply, hey, don't worry about it. Jesus understands all that. We're all good. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So the way stories are told or being told right now uh, compared to truth-telling, uh, I think we want to guide the conversation to make it all-encompassing, make everybody feel okay. Mm -hmm. um, I think both of these, what you're describing and what you've described, what both of you guys just described is, a, uh, I think, the, the most pernicious form of lie. It borrows from the truth without having to tell all of it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. kindness is good. Yes. Right? And inclusion is good, but but the truth is more than kindness and inclusion. And I would I wouldn't say it's more in in the realm of in the realm of truth telling versus kindness. I think doctors come to my mind. A doctor has the hard business of diagnosing patients and telling the truth about what he finds within the person, and sometimes that's a hard thing. And it may hurt to hear the diagnosis that a doctor brings to you. But a doctor is unkind if he refuses to diagnose a problem yeah. in someone. Um, or to be honest about it. Yeah, or to be honest. He, he's, yeah, he's unkind to the extent that he won't tell the truth about what he's found that, that, that's a, uh, like, a, like a malignant cancer or something, you know. Well, I, I, I mean, I've got some personal experience with this. You guys know my story, but about five years ago, I woke up with a symptom that led me to the emergency room, and after a couple of hours, a doctor came in and said, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but you don't have much time to live. I, I was within a few hours of dying, and um, that's a crushing—you don't want to have that conversation with your doctor, but here's the deal. If he hadn't had that conversation with me, I wouldn't be alive today. Mm -hmm. because the action would not have been taken that was needed. And it was, I mean, it was devastating action. I mean, it was, you know, I was sort of out of commission for months after that, trying to recover from the restorative actions that they took. But if he hadn't been willing mm -hmm. to have a hard conversation and tell me the truth about my circumstance, I wouldn't be alive today. Mm. Well, let me take that as an opportunity to, pivot to one of the other stories I see a lot, and it's just this idea of we, our job in life is to be happy with ourselves, that um, the, the idea of human existence is to make our outer world validate our inner world, um, that who I am, what I want, what I desire, if I can check all those boxes, if I can make myself just innerly satisfied then I've achieved what it means to be a good human. That's that's really a great <laughs> observation, I think. I mean, it, I mean, we may have talked about this before, but for anybody who happens to be listening to this later, um, boy, if you get a chance, read Carl Truman's book. Um, now, all of a sudden, I can't remember the name of it. Um, the Rise oh, and Triumph the of the Modern Rise Self. Rise and Triumph of the Modern yeah. Self. And his whole point in that is that somewhere <laughs> along the way, this question we started out talking about meaning Somewhere along the way, the whole question of meaning and how to find meaning morphed into, in Western culture, psych the question of psychological satisfaction. You know, I, I, everything should 
be arranged so that I feel good about myself mm-hmm. and my um, and my prospects. You know, um, I, I was thinking about this very thing yesterday when you guys announced that at Lake Ridge we're having this. Uh, or maybe you didn't announce it, but you were talking about it yesterday that we're going to do a series on Esther and Ruth. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that just immediately clicked when you talked about that was that here's two women who had to make decisions to act in ways that were, that put themselves at serious risk. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't about, in their case, it wasn't about their own psychological satisfaction. Or even individual fulfillment. Or even individual fulfillment. It, 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 they may not survive the experience in both mm-hmm. of their cases, but mm-hmm. they had to do, their choice was to whether to do what was right or to preserve themselves. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, that's a, that's a hard question. And so this whole notion of meaning doesn't always revolve around... Um, <clears throat> you know, self-satisfaction. I, I think this is the exam. This is an awesome example of one of the lies that Satan's telling in story form in our world today, and it's that nothing is inherently wrong with anyone. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, there, it, it basically is covering over the reality of sin and what it does to us and what it's done to our world. And if we can tell ourselves everything's basically okay, then inclusion and kindness are the only way forward. Yeah, but well, if there's something fundamentally broken in us and in the world, then there's a different. There's got to be a different story to tell. Right. One of the popular phrases that I cannot stand is when I hear people say, "I'm, I'm just speaking my truth," or "Just live your truth," and um, because that's that's really what they're getting at is, "Don't tell me what I I should be doing. Let me decide for myself what that ought to be." And it, you know, just completely ignores. Any acknowledgement well, we're of super God. selective about that too. My truth mm. is that I've got a billion dollars in the bank, yeah. so I'm gonna live as if I do. Yeah, right. you know, yeah. I mean, that doesn't work out so well in yeah. the long but run. But it's you know? it's such a destructive story because it goes back to this illusion we kind of mm. keep going back to of the boy and the dragon that was brought up yeah. before. This would be like saying there are no dragons; there are only boys, and the only way we get a dragon is if a boy starts believing. Wait a minute, this world is dan- there are dragons here. Like we need to fight um, because what it does is it makes everyone vulnerable to the more vulnerable to the lies Mm. because you can't ever speak truth that counteracts what is dark and evil about someone you know it some of the best friends i've had in my life are the people that looked me straight in the eyes and said you are wrong and you're doing something wicked and you need to stop (laughs) because they said this is not the way that I'm trying to think if I've ever said that to you and whether I'm one of your best friends. <laughs> yeah, now. well, <laughs> only the few, the, the happy few yeah. who said what everyone else was thinking. <laughs> uh, you know, I think, Kyle, you're right, but I also believe, um, you know, to take that a step further, it's not just that we're saying there are no dragons. I think Satan's actually wanting to um, rewrite the narrative on who the dragons are. So it's this idea of hate speech again. Satan wants not, it's not that there are no dragons, it's that there are dragons and they're the people who are trying to tell you there's anything wrong with you to be dealt with at all. Right? Mm-hmm. And so those who would tell the truth have become the cultural dragons mm-hmm. and the ones to be put down or silenced or done away with. Uh that that I think is one of the one of the other lies that Satan tells us. I would even say that you could look at society and you could look at the stories that we find on television and in movies and in modern, and I think I, what I'd like for us to hear is some examples, some specific examples of these kinds of stories, if if any come to mind. But these are stories that uh, are written to undermine first principles. 
I think Satan has an agenda from of old, okay? The devil has an ancient passion, and it is to corrupt creation. It is to corrupt the created order that God has established, and that means first principles, all right? So if he can... If he can rewrite the fabric of reality, of course he can't do that. But if he could, he would he would do it the opposite of the way that God has elected to do it. So, are there stories that you can point to where Satan is doing that? Where you, know, you look at these first principles, and this is a story that's seeking to undermine that first principle. So, I think the most maybe the most obvious example of this in the last ten to fifteen years would be uh, the show Modern Family. Um, exceptionally well written. Great acting. I mean, all the production value you could want out of a, a television show. Um, and what's really ingenious about it is, uh, for those that haven't seen it, it's the it's the uh, highs and lows, the journey of uh, this very uh, non traditional nuclear family. So there's um, a uh, homosexual uh, a couple that's part of this family who've adopted a daughter. There's kind of a nuclear family of a mom and a dad and kids and. Then there's uh, one of their dads who's in a, I believe it's a second marriage. Um, but it's basically this family that looks very different from what you would have seen in a sitcom in the 1990s, even the 1950s. And, but what they do is they write the show as if it were a 1950s sitcom. And then they take the, uh, like the mockumentary, like The Office. So they're taking all these uh, forms that we're very familiar with, that are very American, that feel very traditional, and then they're throwing them into stories that make all of the characters that are doing things that we would have otherwise considered um, potentially wrong and against the first principles of the Bible, but they're the heroes now, right? So you have these slapstick stories of this uh, homosexual couple trying to raise their daughter, and as the audience were watching this going, man, I just don't want, I don't want there to be a fight in this couple. I don't want there to be conflict with their daughter. And so they're they're, they're hijacking all of these emotions and all these feelings that we have of we want the family to survive, but it's placed within the context of a family that we would have said is violating first principles. So you find yourself rooting yeah. for something that scriptures condemn. Exactly, and, and that's the genius of that kind of a story. Um, they're able to take any—you always want to watch the main character. If you're watching a story, who is the good guy, and what are you excusing in the good guy because they're the good guy? Yeah, I never saw that show uh, i was in bible study the night that, that came <laughs> on but uh, <laughs> all right, but thanks for filling us in Kyle. yeah sorry <laughs> now, there, there's another show this is us that mm. we have uh tuned into and then we've turned off a few episodes because one of the lies that they've introduced this whole idea it's not male and female that god created anymore it's it's they these pronouns that they want to use and so they've started it uh uh, injecting these things into the script, and uh, it's very disappointing. I mean, because there's some wholesome elements to the to the show, but but that's that's part of the yes. the craftiness, right? That's exactly right. Just mix mix it in just a little here or there, and get yep. you to root, as Kyle's talking about, for the good part, <laughs> and just let the the baggage that's in there tag along. I you think know? a lot of yeah. well-intentioned Christians find themselves in shows like that, going, yeah. but. But so much of this is good. Yeah. How could this part yeah. be wrong? Right. So, you know, if all this, if these people are loving one another, what could possibly be wrong with that? Right. You know? Have you guys seen these commercials that that get made, where um, they're selling some, usually it's some kitchen tool or device, and they're they're like, "Have you tried to crack eggs? You know, 
the the old fashioned way, and they show some utterly incompetent guy who like <laughs> smashes the egg all over the counter or something, <laughs> right. and then get our tool, you know, and then they show you know the smiling person they're using some tool that they're selling for nineteen ninety five. You know, you get not just one but two. Um, well, this is kind of the way corporate education works. Um, hmm. So to give a different sort of spin on this issue of storytelling and lies, um, I'm part of a you know, a technology company, and it's a large company, and we don't, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not Christian. I mean, it's just, it's just a company, you know, that, that works in the area of technology. And, but we do this annual training, right? I mean, there's, there's annual training on sexual harassment. And these trainings that you do really take the form of a series of stories or vignettes that are designed to indoctrinate the listener. And then at the end of this series of stories and vignettes, you got to take a test to prove that you're not some troglodyte, you know, who can't who can't learn and adopt the right responses to these stories. And so these stories are, I mean, they're sort of laughable at one level. Anyone who's sort of clueless enough to act the way they have the people in the stories are like the people, the incompetent people on those egg tool commercials. They, yeah. you know, no one would do this in real life, but they do these sort of series of vignettes. But most recently, the most recent one I sat through, because you got to do these annually, was different. For the first time, they introduced a transgender component. And it was interesting because for, in my life, in my career, for at least the last 20 years, when you watch these sexual harassment trainings, one of the things that you're sort of waved off as a man from ever doing is complimenting the parents of a female in the workplace. You're, you're not supposed to observe or, or a remark on this person's appearance um, because that's not what we're there for. That's not what it's about. Their, their success shouldn't be tied to the way they look or, or anything like that. That's, that's the narrative. That's the story. Gender right? profiling that's, and those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, that's what's that. being cultivated. But in this most recent one, it was interesting because there was this scenario where, you know, the old white guy who's just kind of a knucklehead – um, is talking to a woman at the company Christmas party, uh, and he says, hey, where do we stand on the the Tillman deal or whatever it is? And, and she's like, oh, I think we're going to get it. You know, it's looking really good. He's like, all right, you know, let's, let's make sure we get it. And about that time, this other woman walks up, um, and, uh, and the, the old guy kind of just rolls his eyes and sort of clams up. And the first woman looks at the second woman and says, Oh, you look just gorgeous. Oh, what a great dress. You just look fantastic, you know, and just kind of gushes over this woman's appearance. And she says to the guy, doesn't she look wonderful? You know, and the guy's just kind of like rolling his eyes and sort of not entering into the conversation. He just sort of totally clammed up, you know. And at first you sort of think, well, is this, now you're trying to figure this out. Is this a lesbian thing? Is this a, is this a, uh, are we showing that this guy is not going to be lured into doing anything that can be remotely sort of shown to be harassing or, or inappropriate? Well, eventually the first woman leaves and the woman who had walked up that got all the compliments, um, it becomes clear that this is actually a transgender, it's a man in a dress. And, um, um, and, and, uh, and, the, and the old guy that was kind of the protagonist at the beginning was like, why do you want to dress up in a dress? You know, I and mean, he's just kind of in this guy's face. And um, and so he behaves in ways that, you know, in real life, in a workplace, no one would sort of be that much of a jerk. You know, no one would act that way. But they're just trying to 
do these sort of extreme incompetent sort of behaviors to drive home a point. But what was interesting to me about this was that on the one hand, men are being indoctrinated not to compliment men, women on their appearance because that's wrong. But on the other hand, they're being indoctrinated that if you don't compliment a man who's, who's uh, pretending to be a woman on their appearance, that's also wrong. Yeah. And so uh, it's a complete inversion of, of any sort of um, instinctive or baked-in reaction that people would have what, to this kind of thing. What's interesting about that, well, <laughs> there's a lot of things interesting about that. One of them, though, is that the guy who used to be the, the protagonist has become the villain. Oh, yeah. Right? And I think that's, there's a lot of that going on right. in storytelling today. I, so Disney's been doing this. I, I like Disney. I, I tend to like Disney, but Disney's been co-opted by the um, by the extremists and the and the social warriors of you know today. So one of the things that Disney's been doing lately is rewriting some of their villains as protagonists. So like the movie Maleficent comes to mind. Here was yeah. the original story of um, Sleeping Beauty. It's about a guy who uh, falls in love with a girl who's great risk. And from this evil witch who wants to get her, right? And so he has to basically um, strap on the shield of, what is it? The shield of faith and the sword of truth, literally. It's what I think what they call it, <coughs> with a big giant cross emblazoned on the shield and go off and fight the dragon in order to save the, the, the woman who's, the princess who's been, you know, done in by the, by the evil person. Well, now that whole story's been turned upside down. The prince isn't the hero, Maleficent, actually, the dragon is the one who's been misunderstood mm -hmm. all her life. She's been mm -hmm. misunderstood, and she's actually the protagonist. Mm -hmm. So the dragon you see may not be the dragon that is. You know, there's all this corruption and who's the protagonist and who isn't. Who's ambiguity. The, yeah. yeah, ambiguity. So yeah. Well, and there was there's one recently, uh, Raya and the Last Dragon. Great little flick. It was a fun fun movie. Great animation. One of the things I I actually guessed it in the before i saw the movie i saw the trailers and i said i know who the villain in the story is the villain in the story is not any character in the story the villain in the story is conflict itself it is disunity um and so i was watching the trailers and then i watched the whole movie and we got to the end and you know i won't spoil the story but basically the the conflict is about why can't we all just get along and it was one of those moments where you just go is this the best story we can tell? Is the story of reality that there's nothing evil? We're just all trying to learn how to get along? Mm -hmm. And I was I was dumbfounded that that was the level of truth about the universe a movie to kids could tell. Yeah, so if, if Satan exists, wouldn't it be interesting <laughs> if really the, the, the plan here is to fill our minds and hearts with a, a particular kind of story that there actually aren't any bad guys? Who would that benefit? Uh, the bad guys. The bad guys, <laughs> right? Like the, those would the ones. Those they would be the ones who go undetected. Yeah, you know. We're I'm reading through the screw tape letters a little bit right now, and they talk about this that uh, until the the demons talk amongst one another and they say until we come up with a better plan, we found that our best method is always to conceal ourselves, mm -hmm. to always pretend as though there is no such thing as evil or demons or us, because that allows us to work behind the scenes. Um, and that's what I think a lot of uh, the devil storytelling is. It's obscuring himself and g throwing blame anywhere else um, but on where it belongs. 
You see that in the cities across the country right now where all the looting's taking place. I mean, they mm. might be arrested. They're released almost mm. uh, instantly mm. because it's not really their fault. It's the pandemic or you don't understand what they've had to live through kind of thing. So that justifies your behavior in their eyes, or at least the leadership of that particular area. This is another big this is another big lie in terms of the stories we're told, which is nothing about our lives is the consequence of our own moral agency. You know, yeah. um, everything about our lives is the product of our environment. Mm-hmm. We don't influence our environment. It just acts on us, and so we can't be blamed for anything. We can't be held responsible for anything we do because we're just rolling out the programming that our environment has placed upon us. And mm-hmm. weirdly enough, and I'll, you know, maybe I'll, I'll just kind of go out on a little bit of a limb here and say this. Um, I think that that point of view is even widely adopted among Christians, mm-hmm. particularly as it relates to Christian parenting. I think there, I think Christian publishing contributes to this. I think there's a whole raft of authors who've written on Christian parenting over the last 30 years who have for understandable reasons, cultivated the view that if you'll just adopt a certain set of techniques, your kids will turn out all right. You know, uh, they're, they're, um, I don't know if we want to talk about specific books, but there's one title that I think is particularly egregious in this regard. Somebody wrote a book called Have a New Kid by Friday, you know, and I mean, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> Where is you know, that? Where can you buy that at? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to get one. Have a new pastor by Friday. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, See me in my office. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, so I think there is, you know, there's this, you know, psychological view of humanity and mankind, which I think, you know, Christianity has not been immune from embracing certain anti-biblical assumptions about. Uh, the lack of human agency, the lack of moral accountability due to circumstances. And I think uh, that's one of the stories that is told that is, uh, you know, not been, you know, fully rejected by any means by in Christian circles. There was a show on, on TV. It may still be on TV. I don't know. I, I, I don't watch it anymore. I stopped watching it because of exactly the reasons you're describing here. It was a show called Criminal Minds. And it was really, really well done crime drama, kind of getting to the, the, the finding out, you know, what went on with this crime. It's like a mystery show type of thing, and and you know, utterly terrifying, by the way. I can't leave my house without. I, I lock doors because yeah. of that show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really well made, and and it's gripping in the way that they tell the stories. But what I found is, the, at the end of all these stories, uh, not all of them, but but routinely, the guys or the people behind these atrocious crimes were often, it turned out, the victims of, like, an abusive father or something, right? And so we were made at the end of the story to go, oh, isn't that an awful crime? But it really wasn't his fault. Really, the, the fault was fatherhood, you know? And you're going, wait, what? That's not—so that's an example of um, the abuse of storytelling, the power of story to shape— a view of the world that doesn't align with the biblical story that 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 God is telling us through scripture. And I think Christians need to be wary of the stories that they imbibe because stories have the power to shape the way we view the world. 
they bypass our analytical faculties often and go straight to the heart, straight to the feel, and we find ourselves rooting for things that Jesus would condemn in the world. And so I think it's not just, well, everything's basically okay so long as you've got your wits about you. Your wits about you aren't good enough when it comes to stories. Stories move us and shape our outlook on life, and we've got to learn, I think, to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the lies that Satan wants to tell in our world. Christians need to be better about this. So listen, we've we've sort of run um, to the end of our time together in this current conversation, but I would like to ask another question. It's going to seem like a, a hard right turn here, but <laughs> I, I, I want to... I want to get to this because I'd like for us to tie some bows here. It is the Christmas season, and so what I'd like for us to do is to think about keeping all of this stuff in mind, the power of storytelling. I'd like for each of us in our closing thoughts to share what is your favorite Christmas movie and why? Why is it your favorite? In light of all that we've discussed, and if you're listening to this and it's still Christmas season, maybe take this as some recommendations. So I'll go first. I, I'm going to go to, on the comedy side, Elf is a family favorite in our house. So we'll watch Elf every year with Will Ferrell and just get a big kick out of it. But It's a Wonderful Life is just probably the one that sticks with me the most. And I think the reason behind that is because you see a man who was so distracted by a lot of things that weren't the most important things in life. And so throughout the course of the movie, he's brought to the realization that the one thing that matters is uh, his family. And so anyway... That's that's the one that really sticks with me. Hmm. Yeah, I think It's a Wonderful Life is obviously, I think, the objectively best Christmas movie ever made. But my favorite is definitely uh, Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown Christmas movie. Um, <laughs> not because it's just 25 minutes and I'm a millennial, but <laughs> because it has – it's the best argument for the meaning of Christmas I've ever seen put to film because it has the way of – poking fun at all the way, all the reasons people give for Christmas. You know, it's, well, maybe you just need to uh, get better presents, or maybe it's you need to get more uh, festive with the season, or even you need to get involved in good causes. You know, it gives all these really, like, silly reasons we all give for the reason for the season. And then at the end, they literally just speak forth the Christmas story from Luke 2 and then all go redeem a little weak Christmas tree that needs some love. I mean, goodness gracious, it's it's my favorite. Do they allow that on TV anymore? Uh, I don't. I think that they may be sh- showing it this year. I, okay. I don't know. But um, they so, used to air yeah. it on NBC, right? Th- there's it? a great story behind that movie. I mean, the CBS execs, I think, were very against that. The way they did that, they were like, "You're kidding! You know this jazz soundtrack? What are you talking about?" And <laughs> And this, you know, this whole storyline, this is never going to fly, you know. And now, you know, people weep when they watch that, uh, when they watch Linus get up on the stage and, yeah. and quote, you know, quote from Luke, Luke I guess. Um, um, and, uh, and it was, of course, a huge hit, I mean, a- against all the predictions of the, the legacy, uh, you know, media folks who thought they knew better. And I guess Schultz just dug his heels in and said, yeah. no, this is it, you know, I'm got my contract and this is the way we're doing it and uh and of course it turned out to be a huge hit um i think my favorite probably is the bishop's wife not the whitney houston version but the, the preacher's wife the, there's denzel washington yeah yeah but the, version, yeah but the uh, Cary grant david niven loretta young 
version. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot to like it. Just the rich, hilarious dialogue and characters in that movie. Um, uh, the beautiful uh, children's chorus that sings at one point is just, you know, astonishingly uh, good. But the whole message that that the supernatural is real. Um, that there's more to this world than we can see with our senses, that um, that relationships matter more than anything. Um, you know, uh, the centrality of our faith to everything we are and do. Uh, all of those things are messages in The Bishop's Wife. I just love that movie. We watch it every year. So, uh, Kyle, you mentioned one of—I love that movie too, Dad, by the way. I watched it recently. Um, there's, a, there's an awesome hymn— that gets sung in that movie that no one sings anymore by a boys' choir. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, it, I'll just tease that out there. If you if you go get it, pay particular attention to the lyrics of the hymn that's sung by a boys' choir in that show. But Kyle, you mentioned one of the p- classic arguments for Christmas being maybe you just need better presents. Um, yeah, that <laughs> reminded me of a a guy I knew as a young boy. He had maybe the worst Christmas ever. Okay, his brother got like a brand new gaming system and all these awesome things. And for for no cause that he could detect, he hadn't been a particularly bad boy. This kid got a towel, (laughs) 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 an empty Pez dispenser, and a book he'd already read. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So, anyway, so maybe sometimes. Maybe sometimes for some people the answer really is getting better <laughs> yeah. presents. Christmas. I've never forgotten what that kid got. He was sort of baffled, and he was such an amiable guy. He was like, "I don't, yeah. I don't know. I mean, this is what I got, and I'm happy with that." You know. Anyhow, my uh, you you've each you've each mentioned three of my favorites, so um, I'm just going to decide to add another one because because of that. My favorite. This is not a favorite movie because it's hard to find a. A really good version of the story, but my favorite Christmas story is Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Um, and it's my favorite for so many reasons, but but I think probably for the same reasons I love It's a Wonderful Life. The older I get, it tells, I, I find that these are characters, George Bailey and Ebenezer Scrooge, who have similar lessons to learn about the meaning of life and what ultimately matters and... Um, what what even certain kinds of lies can do to destroy a life um and uh so anyway yeah i would i would heartily recommend uh, actually if i'm going to recommend a christmas carol movie it would have to be jim carrey's animated version it's really interesting um, i've never seen it it's the i think it's closest to the actual book i read the book every year it's a tiny little book um yeah, the movie's I, I, good but Jim Carrey's version is, uh, as as Ebenezer Scrooge, he he does a great job acting it out. But the movie actually sticks very close to the books, very faithful. Most of the dialogue is ripped right from the pages. So, so this know. was just sort of. I mean, I know I'm not. I'm supposed to get my favorite. This is just sort of a bonus. In 19, I think it was 1970. It might have been 71, but I'm pretty sure it was 70 when the Albert Finney version of the musical Scrooge came out. My father took us to New York City. I was a kid. And we sat in Radio City Music Hall and watched the premiere of that show in New York City the day it came out. 
and um, which was a great, I mean, Radio City Music Hall is a, a great venue. The other thing we did that Christmas while we were in New York that day is we toured NBC Studios. And uh, and back in those days, The Tonight Show was being made uh, in New York still. They then moved to California. So we toured The Tonight Show Studios and all this stuff. But one of the things they had in the lobby was this big glass display case. And in the display case were all of the um, stop-motion figures that they used to create Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer with Burl Ives and that uh-huh. old school. Oh, yeah. They were all in the display mm-hmm. case in that thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember as a kid, I, I loved oh, that yeah. Rudolph. I still watch it yeah. with every year. But um, but I was really disappointed at the size. And man, that, that abominable snowman was just so <laughs> disappointing because he, he ended up, he was like eight inches tall or something. And it was sort of disappointing. You were sad they didn't have a real abominable snowman. Yeah, or at least he he needed to be a little intimidating. He wasn't intimidating. You know, you you could accidentally step on him and wouldn't even notice. Well, guys, the stories that we tell and the stories we hear, especially the stories we tell again and again, they matter. And I think God's given us an important story. I would say, I think, speaking for all of us, it's important that we as Christians be witnesses to that story, to tell the story that the Bible tells us to tell, especially times of year like this when um, the world's attention is drawn again to the boy born in a manger who saved the world. So I I guess let that be our encouragement to to everyone, anyone who's listening, all three of you, um, go tell the story that that, uh, Jesus is the Savior of the world. We all live in a story-formed world. As Christians, we're living out God's story of creation, redemption, and recreation through all things in Christ Jesus. Yet, we're also wading through a sea of counter-narratives, Satan's stories that are undermining God's story and teaching us lies that seep into our souls. We should be very wise, not only in choosing the stories we receive, we should be faithful to keep on speaking the truth of Scripture and the story of God's love for us in Christ Jesus, even to a world that doesn't want to hear it. This has been another Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can join the conversation and share your thoughts and ideas with us by emailing us at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.